before we get too far into this episode, let me point out that this one is a bit unique. In this episode, I'm going to dive deeper into a text that I preached on this morning from 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, this podcast will probably make more sense if you've already listened to that sermon. It should be available in the podcast feed right now. So if you haven't listened to that yet, you may want to do it now. If you have heard that sermon already, we're going to wade into the details of this passage. If you're not driving right now and you happen to have a Bible nearby, I would strongly encourage you to open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3 and follow along with me. I think you'll have an easier time keeping up if you do that. Okay, before we go any further, I want to read from the passage in question. So listen along with me as I read from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. The primary question that we're taking up in this episode is what in the world Peter means in verse 19 when he says that Christ went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Throughout Christian history, there have been many ways that people have understood that phrase. What I want to do is walk through some of those different interpretations. We certainly don't have time to cover all of the interpretations, but I've tried to collect the most representative ones throughout history and put them under one of four categories. As we go along, I also want to point out some broader principles of how we should think about and handle difficult passages like this one. So let's dive in. What does Peter mean when he says that Christ went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison? The first interpretation, I'm going to call this one the Augustan. The Augustan. I've named it after a bishop uh, in the 300s who made it popular. The Augustan interpretation understands Peter to mean that Christ preached through Noah to the people who lived while Noah was building the ark. So I'll say that again to make sure you catch that. The, the Augustan interpretation understands Peter to mean that Christ preached through Noah to the people who lived while Noah was building the ark. At first glance, this interpretation certainly seems to have a lot of merit. Peter says in verse 20 of these spirits in prison that they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. And in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, Peter once again references Noah and calls him a herald of righteousness, implying that Noah preached to the people of his day. Augustine reckoned that while Christ was not literally present during the days when Noah was building the ark, he spoke by means of the Holy Spirit through Noah to the people of Noah's generation. The reason Peter calls these people spirits in prison is because they were human beings imprisoned in sin. Now, as we make our way through some of these interpretations, I, I do want to make it clear that some of these are unbiblical, while others are simply less plausible. The Augustine interpretation is not necessarily unbiblical in the sense that it contradicts some important teaching of Scripture. In fact, in this very letter, Peter has already said that the Spirit of Christ preached through the prophets of the Old Testament. The notion that Christ, by means of the Holy Spirit, would have preached through Noah to the people of Noah's day 
is not unbiblical. But I do think it is implausible that that is what Peter means when he says in chapter 3, verse 19, that Christ proclaimed to the spirits in prison. It's not unbiblical. It's just not what Peter means in this particular verse. To put it simply, it would be highly unusual for Peter to refer to living human persons by using the word that is translated as spirits. That word is never used anywhere else in the Bible in that way. It would also be odd for Peter to say that Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. It's one thing to say that he preached through the Spirit, but it doesn't make as much sense to say that he went and proclaimed. It seems to me that there are other interpretations that are more plausible than this one, that make more sense of what Peter says. So that's the Augustan interpretation. The second interpretation I'm going to call the second chance. The second chance. At first, it sounds similar to the Augustan, but on further examination, I do think it is fair to call this second chance interpretation not only implausible, but unbiblical. The second chance interpretation says that the spirits in prison refer to those who died during the flood in which Noah and his family were preserved. So just to be clear, Augustine thought that Christ preached through Noah before the flood, while the people of Noah's day were still alive. This interpretation has Jesus descending to hell and preaching to the spirits of those people after they drowned in the flood in order to offer them essentially a second chance, hence why I'm calling it the second chance interpretation. Clever, right? By this way of thinking, Jesus goes to hell to give these people an opportunity to repent and be saved. Now, most people who adopt this interpretation also infer from it that God will offer a second chance to everyone in hell, or at least to those who never heard the gospel while they were living. That's why I say that this interpretation is not only implausible, but also unbiblical, because it goes against the clear teaching of Scripture that, in the words of Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. In Luke 16, Jesus tells a parable about a rich man who has died and is being tormented in Hades and a poor man named Lazarus who has died and is carried to Abraham's side, a place also known in the New Testament as paradise. The rich man in torment pleads, not for a second chance for himself, but that Abraham would send Lazarus, the poor man, to warn his family lest they also come to this place of torment. So the parable assumes that there is hope for someone who is still living to repent and be saved. But there are absolutely no second chances for someone who has already died. Combine that with the overwhelming urgency in the New Testament about the need to proclaim the message of the kingdom to all peoples. And there is an overwhelming consensus in the Bible that once a person dies, there are no more opportunities for them to repent. Now, before we move on to the third interpretation, we're, we're halfway through uh, our interpretations here, I think it would be helpful to pause and point out an important and broader principle of biblical interpretation. It's the idea that we should always let Scripture interpret Scripture. 
Rob Plummer puts it this way. He says, if we believe that all the Bible is inspired by God and thus non-contradictory, passages of Scripture that are less clear should be interpreted with reference to those that are more transparent in meaning. He goes on to say, cults and heretical groups often seize upon a few obscure texts, ascribe to them questionable meaning, and then interpret the remainder of the Bible through these deviant lenses. In the case of this difficult text in 1 Peter 3, it would simply contradict the clear teaching of Scripture to think that Christ descended to hell to offer a second chance for those who have already died to repent and be saved. Now let's move on to the third way that people have interpreted the phrase, He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. I'm going to call this third one the Old Testament believers interpretation. The Old Testament believers interpretation. According to this understanding, Christ liberated the spirits of Old Testament believers who had died before the coming of the Messiah. Now, these saints were not in hell in the sense that they were in a place of torment, but they had merely descended to the place of the dead, the place that the Bible calls paradise or Abraham's side. I mentioned a moment ago the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16. In that parable, you have two people who die. Lazarus is carried to Abraham's side, while the rich man is cast into Hades, which is clearly a place of torment. There is a great impassable chasm between these two places, yet they obviously can communicate with one another. The idea with this Old Testament believer's interpretation is that between his death and resurrection, Jesus went to paradise. He went to Abraham's side. Again, he did not descend to hell in the sense of a place where he experienced torment. Instead, he went to the place of the righteous dead. He went where Old Testament saints like Abraham and Moses and Hannah and Noah and Ruth and David were. And there he proclaimed to them his victory. And when God raised him from the dead on the third day, he also liberated those spirits with him so that they are no longer in the place of the dead, but they are with the Lord. Now, this interpretation is like the first one. It's not necessarily unbiblical. It does not contradict some clear teaching of Scripture, but it does seem implausible that this is what Peter means when he says that Christ proclaimed to the spirits in prison. The main reason I find it implausible is because it would be very odd for Peter to describe the spirits of Old Testament believers as being in prison. And because Peter says in the next phrase at the beginning of verse 20, they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. That would be a very strange way indeed to refer to Old Testament saints like Abraham and Ruth and David. It's not unbiblical to think that Christ proclaimed his victory to these Old Testament believers, but it does seem implausible that that is what Peter means in this particular verse. That brings me to our fourth interpretation. I'm going to call this fourth one the fallen angels interpretation, the fallen angels interpretation. This is the majority view among scholars today. There are some disagreements about the details, but there is fairly broad consensus about the overarching idea. In case you can't tell by the name I gave to it, 
According to this fourth interpretation, the spirits in prison are a reference to fallen angels or demonic spirits. Now, one thing we need to make clear is that Jesus proclaiming or preaching to these evil spirits does not mean that he was offering salvation to them or that he was preaching in order that they might repent and be released from their bondage. The word Peter uses in verse 19 when he says that he went and proclaimed, that word can be neutral. It does not necessarily mean that he extended an offer of repentance and salvation. In this context, it seems to mean that he simply proclaimed his victory to these fallen angels. Peter frames the death and resurrection of Christ as a conquest over evil forces. Now, what is the basis for interpreting the phrase this way? There are several clues here in the passage. First is the word spirits. That word almost always refers to spiritual beings, not to human spirits. The only exception is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23, which refers to the saints assembled in heaven as the spirits of the righteous made perfect. It's clear in that context that the word spirits refers to human spirits, but every other time the word is used, it is in reference to spiritual beings like angels or demons. Of course, it would make very little sense to refer to righteous angels as spirits in prison. So the next clue is the phrase, in prison. Earlier I mentioned 2 Peter 2, 5, where Peter calls Noah a herald of righteousness. In the verse just before that, 2 Peter 2, 4, he says that God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. That same idea is echoed in Jude 6, which says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. The book of Revelation repeatedly refers to this place as the abyss or the bottomless pit. And in Revelation chapter 20, verse 7, John refers to this place when he says, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. It's the same word Peter uses in 1 Peter 3 when he refers to the spirits in prison. The third clue that points us to these spirits in prison being fallen angels is what Peter goes on to say in verse 22. He says that following his resurrection, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Everywhere else that the New Testament makes reference to authorities and powers, it is always describing demonic forces. So there are parallel thoughts here. Jesus went and proclaimed his conquest over evil to the spirits in prison, and he has gone into heaven to sit at God's right hand with all demonic beings having been subjected to him. Now there's still one thing that is not quite clear, and that is the timing of this proclamation. Even among those who hold this fourth interpretation, there is some disagreement. Some understand Peter to mean that Jesus proclaimed his victory over these spirits in prison between his death and resurrection. Then those demonic beings were subjected to him after his resurrection when he was exalted to God's right hand. 
Others think that the proclamation took place after his resurrection, just as his exaltation did. It does not seem to me that we can answer that question with sufficient certainty. And that brings me to the final principle of biblical interpretation that I want to point us toward. Earlier I said that we should let Scripture interpret Scripture. What that first principle assumes is that there are some biblical texts that are more or less clear than others. The second principle is that what we need to know from the Bible is sufficiently clear. What we need to know from the Bible is sufficiently clear. In other words, I don't want you to come up against a difficult passage like the one in 1 Peter 3 and begin to think that you are somehow inadequate to understand the Bible. Of course, in one sense, you are. No one person is adequate. That's why God has given us His Spirit to illumine His Word, and it's why He has given us the church in which we can learn and obey His Word. But we don't need to make the mistake of thinking that the Bible is something only experts can understand. The Westminster Confession of Faith summarizes the clarity of the Bible in a very helpful way. It says this, Not all things in Scripture are equally plain in themselves or equally clear to all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly stated and explained in one place or another in Scripture that not only the educated but also the uneducated may gain a sufficient understanding of them by a proper use of the ordinary means. You may find it encouraging to know that the same Peter who wrote this difficult passage we've been wrestling with also said of Paul's letters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. To say that the Bible is clear does not mean that every passage is equally easy to understand, but it does mean that anyone who approaches the Bible sincerely can gain a sufficient understanding of everything necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation. The most central truths are crystal clear. We must be careful, however, not to do what Peter said the ignorant and unstable do with things that are hard to understand. Rather than humbly accepting that we are finite and allowing that there are some things we will never understand on this side of our glorification, they twist God's Word to their own destruction. Whether you're more convinced by Augustine's interpretation of 1 Peter 3 or you think that Jesus proclaimed his victory to Old Testament believers or to fallen angels, none of that changes the clear message of Scripture, that God sent his Son to live a sinless life and to suffer in the place of unrighteous sinners. Jesus truly experienced death in its fullness, yet he conquered it and arose victorious over it. He has now been exalted to God's right hand with every evil force being subjected to him. In the words of Hebrews 10, he is waiting until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. This is why God's people should not fear. Because if you are united to Jesus by faith, 
then you are seated with the one who holds the keys of victory over sin and death and hell. It is finished. He has won and he is coming again. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Henderson Baptist Church. If you'd like more information about our church, you can visit us on Facebook or check out our website, hendersonbaptist.org.